personally think integrity is a superpower that can uh, not only make you feel good about doing the right thing, but uh, it can actually supercharge your business and help it grow. So. Welcome everyone to Work2.O podcast. Today we have with us an interesting guest and we will going to have an interesting conversation that's very applicable to today's time. We have Rob Chestnut. Uh, he is a chief ethics officer at Airbnb, a role he took uh, on in late 2019 after nearly four years as the company's general counsel. He previously led eBay's North uh, America legal team where he founded um, the internet's first e-commerce person-to-person platform trust and safety team. He was the general counsel at Czech. Um, for nearly six years and he served 14 years with the U.S. Justice Department where he prosecuted CIA uh, em- uh, employee Alvrich Emis uh, for espionage. He is the author of uh, Intentional Integrity, um, How Smart Companies Can Lead an Ethical Revolution, which is which is expected to be out later part of the year uh, or at least, uh, Rob, when, when, when is it uh, supposed to come out? July 28th is a publication. July 28th. So, fingers uh, crossed. Yeah. Fingers crossed, yes. So with that, yeah. uh, Rob, thank you so much for uh, joining us in the podcast. Uh, thank you. Michelle, thank you for having me. Beautiful. So let's let's start with with your journey. Like what, what, what do you do with Airbnb and what's your typical role? Well, you know, it's an, it's not a typical role. Uh, this is a, a, the, the idea of a chief ethics officer, which I think has an, a, an unfortunate uh, acronym. I don't get to use CEO. Um, it's something that you've seen companies just in the last couple of years uh, start to create this role. Um, my, my, uh, my mission is to drive integrity into the culture of the company, uh, to uh, ensure that employees are thinking about doing the right thing. Um, you know, not just for uh, the, the company's bottom line, which is important, but also doing the right thing for each other and for customers and for the world at large. Interesting. And and um, how are things at Airbnb? Well, you know, Airbnb's had an extraordinary run. Um, you know, what a journey. You know, it was uh, literally started by a couple of guys who blew up air mattresses and put them on the floor of their living room and rented it out to folks. And, uh, you know, it was a, a company that uh, you know, they went around and tried to get funding from just about every uh, venture capital firm in the Valley, and they got turned down by everybody. Um, uh, they're, they're, they're the company that, that just wouldn't die. And then it suddenly took off. Um, and the company's had an extraordinary run uh, of success. Um, the mission of the company really is to connect people from around the world, you know, people with uh, you know, different backgrounds, um, different nationalities. And it's sort of encourage you to get away from staying in the Western hotel and then the, uh, uh, the drinking coffee in the local Starbucks. And instead, you know, get out to the neighborhoods, get out and really meet people and uh, experience a, a place as a local. And that really resonates with folks today. So it's been a, a great journey. Um, you know, I would say with the pandemic right now, there's certainly uh, you know, business for the, you know, the travel industry is struggling. But uh, that, that, that's, uh, I, I think that when the pandemic is over, it, it, uh, people will uh, go back to travel. Interesting. And, and uh, I think 
talk to us about your role so chief ethics officer so is that a statement that um for a company that hey we care enough that we have someone yeah. as a watchdog or or do you think that the industry is at a crisis where we need such roles to send a signal that hey like is it what what's your take on this role well you know what i think there's a there's a role there's an aspect to it that is a signal sender um that is in we recognize that integrity is such an important part of our brand and our, and the way that we operate that we um are devoting a very senior level role and in fact we're going to take one of our senior executives you know the general counsel and put him in that role um there's also a lot of practical to it you know that um integrity is something that um uh, people um put on a poster um they you know stick in a in a code of ethics that's buried somewhere in in hr files but it's not something that that gets talked about much um and so the role really is about uh, how do you practically bring integrity into the conversation of a company and drive it into decisions so um both a ceremonial uh, symbolic uh role and also a very practical one interesting and and from your vantage point what do you think um, how is the um, the world of ethics going when it comes to business side i think we are experiencing um you know i call it a, an ethical or an integrity revolution and here's what i mean by that um for decades companies operated um with one goal in mind that's to make money right you know let's get the stair price up um what's happened though is that um during that period a lot of bad behavior got swept under the rug um yeah you know, sexual harassment um uh you know payoffs accounting irregularities but what's but but something happened and that's the internet um and the internet what the internet's done is it's created a platform um for individuals to speak out you know now what you've got is you've got a situation where one employee take take uber susan fowler Susan Fowler's blog post single-handedly mm. um, changed the course of that company. Um and the internet empowers individuals, gives them a voice and a chance to speak up. Um and I I think during this time, during this revolution, employees are increasingly um feeling that they want to have an impact on the world. Mm. And they are not going to sit quietly and watch while a company uh behaves in ways that are inconsistent with their values um they'll walk out and we've seen um company employees everything from amazon and google and wayfair and and the like company you know, employees are speaking out they don't like what they see um so i think we're in a time now where um the world also needs companies Mm-hmm. um you know we've lost studies show that we've lost confidence in government and government's ability to get things done you know we are in the middle of a a partisan gridlock and nationalism um and i think people are increasingly looking at companies and say look companies you've got to step up your game mm-hmm. we need you to think about things that are not just bottom line profit we need you to be thinking about how to solve some of the big problems in the world and employees are pushing it customers are pushing governments are pushing companies um and so um we're in the in the midst i think of a really interesting time 
and one where integrity is increasingly coming to the forefront of, of corporate decision making. Interesting. So um, let's get to the meat of the stuff. Your book, um, Intentional Integrity, because we are uh, we are going in the turf, and let's let's go deep in that. So first, before we jump in, talk us about this book. Like, what is why why write this book? Well, um, when Uber started having cha uh, challenges, you know, I, I started thinking, wow, somebody better do something about this. The world's changing, right? And then I sort of thought, well, who who is that? And I kind of looked around and figured, you know what, as the company's general counsel, I'm the one that's going to have to deal with the fallout of these things if, if nothing happens. So I better jump in and do it. And, you know, the, the, so the first thing I did is I went to our founder, CEO, you know, Brian Chesky, and Brian said, go big. You know, Brian understood that this was going to be uh, uh, how companies are defined. Um, and so we ended up devising a program at Airbnb um, and focusing on how to drive integrity into the culture. And, you know, really the reason for doing the book, I, I never really thought about doing a book before, but it struck me that, um, companies aren't focused on this, even though all the data shows that um, integrity is something that will have a major role in driving your business. Companies that act with integrity actually do better. They outperform the market. They outperform their peers. Um, still, very few companies were intentionally charting a course and intentionally making it part of their strategy. So, you know, the reason I wrote the book was to share the, uh, the learnings that we've had on this journey at Airbnb and to encourage companies to think about this stuff because we need companies. We need companies to step up and get involved in, in solving these issues. And I'm, I'm hoping the book will play a role in that. Interesting. And, and so I think one thing that you said that some companies are already chartering this idea of, of uh, being uh, companies run with integrity, right? So, um, with sort of says this role like chief ethics officer, do you think that companies are intentionally pushing this idea of integrity or, or like what's the, how do you resolve these two? We'll be back after a short break. This part of the podcast is sponsored by Taudot AI, world's first AI powered platform to build yeah. enterprise success network. Learn more at Taudot AI. Let's go back. Well, you know what? I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't say that the having a chief integrity officer or a chief ethics officer is the 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 yardstick here. Mm -hmm. um, I think that you don't suddenly have integrity simply because you create a role like this. And there are a lot of companies I think that are operating with integrity that don't have such a person. In fact, I think um, the chief ethics officer of any company has to be the CEO. Mm -hmm. um, the the world, um, you know, if you're inside of a company. You take your cue from the top. Mm. And if your leader doesn't act with integrity, um, that gives people permission um, to, uh, to, to act uh, in, in any way that they feel is appropriate for their self-interest. Because all they do is look at the CEO and say, well, if that's the way the CEO operates, then that's the way I can operate too. Um, and you see this. I, I think companies take the cue from the very top of leadership. And having a chief ethics officer, I think, can play a role in that. But um, look, if you don't have the the buy-in of the of the CEO and the board, um, you can have all the chief ethics officers you want. It won't do any good. Interesting. And and um, how do you think this idea of ethics and integrity play along with something called capitalism? Right. So you, yeah. we see we see sort of these businesses and their 
they they basically owe it from a uh, from a legacy mindset point of view they owe it to yeah. their, share, their shareholders this idea of um, so what do you think that how that thing is resolved well uh, i think capitalism is a ch- is 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 changing and it's changing very quickly um even i think as recently as 3 or 4 years ago mm-hmm. if you ask anyone what's the role of a company you would unanimously get uh well it's to uh, increase shareholder value right there's one stakeholder um now what you've seen is a sea change now you've got organizations like the business roundtable the business roundtable is as straight down the line top companies around the world you know represented by all the ceos that organization has come out and endorsed the concept that companies have a bigger role than that companies need to embrace a multi stakeholder approach and you know what do i mean by that i mean that um take airbnb airbnb believes that it has an obligation to its investors and shareholders but it also believes that it has an obligation to its employees its customers including guest and host and it has an obligation to the communities where it does business and that whenever airbnb makes a major decision it has to think about what is the impact of that decision going to be on all of our stakeholders and weigh that um and by the way airbnb is not alone here i mean i, I as part of the book i spoke to adam silver at the nba Adam Silver would tell you that he's got an obligation to uh to the the owners of the company of of the teams to make money and to generate revenue for the league. But he's also got an obligation to the players. He's got an obligation to the fans, to the referees, and to the communities where the NBA does business. And you see um in their decisions that they think about these things. So that's why you know the NBA was the first league um to shut down the season in light of the coronavirus and they did it because they immediately saw that they would not be able to operate by uh in a way that could uh protect the safety of the players and the uh the safety of the fans and they realized for example if they kept playing games um that those ga- the gatherings where the games were played would have a negative impact on the communities where they were um where they were operating so um I think companies that take a long view um and that aren't worried about this quarter's number um but are worried about or are thinking instead about multiple stakeholders um I think that's where capitalism's going um and Vishal one thing that's interesting about that is um study after study shows that companies that think about integrity and ethics um actually outperform the market and they do better than peer companies that don't put a focus on ethics So the interesting irony of all this is that if you recognize that you've got broader obligations to a number of stakeholders over time this will actually rebound to the benefit of your stakeholders and so in other words operating with multiple stakeholders in mind is actually good for shareholders interesting i think that's a fair point so I was having a a conversation with uh, Tim O'Reilly about this this sort of this changing dynamics of capitalism and he was he was talking about that how um, CFOs today are in the this dilemma that hey this the shareholder value and and sort of that that paradigm is shifting so when you when you look at say ethics and and integrity 
who do you think would be uh, apt for running that charter for an organization? Like who would be, because earlier CFO used to play a very critical role when it comes to the perception of the health of the company from the capitalism point of view. Now, as you're rightly saying that even the, the these dynamics of ethics and integrity, they, they outperform their, their counterparts. So from, from your vantage point, who is the ideal um, candidate to be leading this, this charter of, of ethics within the company? Well, um, everybody has to play a role. Right? I mean, uh, if, the, if your CEO and leadership team aren't bought in, and that includes the board, um, then you'll go nowhere. So it has to start there. Um, but everybody's got a role. You know, the, I think general counsel have a role. Um, certainly chief people officers or heads of HR play a role. Um, I, I think that it's the more success um, you you will have more success if you can drive it throughout a company. I don't like the idea that one person owns it. You know, that's sort of the, I call it in the book, the Moses syndrome. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that somebody comes down from the mountain with stone tablets and, and tells everybody the way to operate. I don't think that's the way the world works anymore. Um, at, at Airbnb, for example, one thing we do is we have chief, uh, we not only have a chief ethics officer, but we have ethics advisors. These are people who have got full-time jobs. They're engineers, they're in sales, they're in customer support, they're in marketing. But what we do with them is they volunteer their time and they give spare time to being ethics advisors. They get extra training on the code of ethics. They participate in regular meetings and they are available to their teams and their offices to be like a local ambassador to the ethics program. Too often employees, um, they're intimidated by legal. They're intimidated by HR. You know, they don't want to, oh, I don't want to go to legal. Um, but they are a lot more willing to go to somebody that they know, somebody mm -hmm. in their local office that maybe is on their team, and ask an ethics question. Um, give you an example. At Airbnb this past quarter, um, we had nearly 100 inquiries to ethics advisors, which outnumbers the, the number of uh, hotline reports that we get, which tells you that people – I think people are learning, are yearning for that human, authentic, direct communication. They're going to be more comfortable with that. And so therefore, I think at Airbnb, by creating an environment where people are comfortable having a conversation with other people who are their peers, um, we get an environment where there's more transparency, there's more openness and communication. Um, I think silence is the enemy of integrity. Ambiguity is an enemy of integrity. Um, transparency and open communication, I think, are uh, allies of integrity. So that's the kind of work environment you want. And I think to get that kind of environment, you've got to have a, a number of people in the company who are participating. Interesting. And say, if, if you start this journey, so if, if, uh, if you are given this role of being, a, being an ethics officer or being a chief integrity officer for an organization, how would you how would you plan that role? Like how would you your thirty day, sixty day, ninety day uh, progression look like? If you can walk us through that, we'll be back after a short break. This part of the podcast is sponsored by Tao AI, world's first AI powered platform to build enterprise success network. Learn more at Tao AI. Let's go back. Sure. Um, well, as a chief integrity, as the person, somebody in my role. Um, I'll tell you how I would start. I mean, I'd start, I'd have a meeting with the CEO and the leadership team and, and get their buy-in. And I'd get buy-in on a number of things. I'll give you an example of one thing we did at Airbnb. Um, 
The Me Too movement has been a powerful part, I think, of this integrity revolution. Um, and it's often, I think, caused by this um, uh, imbalance of power with leaders, CEOs engaged in uh, inappropriate relationships where there's not a balance of power in a company and it so often ends badly. So I went into a leadership meeting one day and I said to everybody, um, you know what, I think that um, uh, we will have problems if we as the very top leaders in the company are uh, having uh, romantic relationships with employees and vendors. Why don't we agree as a team that we won't do that? Why don't we agree as a leadership team that no one at the very top of the company, the most senior leaders, senior leaders will not have romantic relationships with other employees or vendors. And, you know, there was silence in the room for a minute, right? Uh, a little laughter. One person said, well, Rob, we're all married or we have relationships anyway. That shouldn't matter. And I said it shouldn't. But from what I'm reading in the paper, that doesn't stop people. Um, you know, marriage doesn't stop people. Um, so what do you think? And we each went around the room, looked at each other, and we committed that we would not have romantic relationships with vendors or other employees. We then put that in our code, and we told the rest of the employee base about it. You know, we said that members of the executive team are not going to do this. Um, and I think by putting that in our code and talking openly about it and committing to each other that we wouldn't do it, um, we've substantially reduced the potential for a problem. And made it, and also I think made it quite clear that um, if somebody on the leadership team did go in that direction, um, it would be obvious what the consequence would be. You violated your trust. You violated your commitment to the rest of the leadership team. Um, so starting with that sort of conversation with leaders, I think, is a, an important step. Another thing I think you've got to do is you've got to get um, broader input. You've got to have your own code of ethics. You know, too often companies... Yeah, how do companies get a code of ethics? Sure, you know, I'll tell you, you know, they, they, the law firm sends it over. The law firm will email over, here's, your, here's a code of ethics. Um, and they tell you, email it out to the entire company and get them to check a box saying they've read it. Well, that, that doesn't really do any good. Uh, everybody sees right through that. It doesn't have an impact. So instead, what you should do is get a cross-functional team, people from different backgrounds, different countries, different nationalities, different religions. Um, Build a code of ethics that's your own, using your company's own language and your own purpose. Um, and then don't just send it out by email. Um, get buy-in from the leadership team. And then actually have a conversation with the company about it. And the person that should have a conversation with the company about it is not a mid-level HR person. It's the CEO or the general counsel or the head of HR. People need to hear directly from leaders that this is important. And the way to do it is take a pause, take a time out, have a conversation. Um, one thing I did as general counsel, we have an orientation program at Airbnb where all new employees go through a series of classes their first week. It's about 20 or 25 classes. It's pretty extensive. So I went to the orientation team and said, I want an hour to talk about ethics. And they looked at me and said, you want an hour? We don't want people to leave the company their first week. And I said, now, I said, trust me. I said, I think, I think we can do this in a way that is engaging. And what I did was I, I started a class for orientation where we just talk about real life examples of ethical problems and challenges that have arisen at Airbnb um, and ask 
like with employees, do you think this violates our code and why? Um, Michelle, it's the number one ranked class mm -hmm. in orientation by new employees. Um, and I've been um, surprised and really touched by the impact it's had. I've had employees come up to me afterwards. Look, I had a woman a couple of months ago came up to me and she had tears in her eyes at the end of the session. And she said, Rob, I left my last company because my boss kept propositioning me. This is a major, large tech company in the Valley. And she said, I didn't trust my company to do the right thing if I reported it. So I left. And she said, if I had heard this sort of message from a leader when I started that company, I would have reported it and I'd still be there. You have no idea, Rob, what it means to me to work at a company where I know this really matters. And that's the kind of reaction you'll get if you have a human conversation um, from a leader to employees about integrity. Interesting. So, um, and thank you for sharing that. I think that's, that's, that's phenomenal. So if, say, you are a, a leader with a company like WeWork, and or, or or Uber, like their yeah. hallmark of what could go wrong probably have gone wrong. Um, how would you deal with that? Like, how would you how do you deal with those companies? Like, uh, how do you I, bring them on the track? Yeah, you know what? I, I had a conversation um, with a guy by the name of Dan Ariely about that. Yeah, Dan Ariely is a leading uh, behavioral psychologist mm -hmm. at Duke University. He's got books. He's got movies. He studied. He's, he's really made a career out of studying lying and cheating, uh, bad human behavior. Um, and we talked about how do you prevent this sort of thing in the workplace? And then how do you deal with a workplace that's gone wrong? And when, when that last question, you know, Dan, Dan looked at me and he said, um, you've, got to, you've got to call a big time out. And you've got to make a major deal of a reset. You need a restart. Um, because once people get comfortable operating a particular way, um, it's hard to shake them out of it. Um, dishonesty, lack of integrity, they're actually contagious. They are. And they're contagious because people look to others for cues about how they should act. We all want to feel good about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And um, if others are acting a particular way, that gives us implicit permission to act the same way. We, if we think others are acting poorly, then we will feel okay about acting poorly. If we feel that others are acting with integrity, that causes us to raise our game and do the same. So where you've had these poisonous environments, um, you've got to send a major message that the old way of doing things is not the way we're going to do business anymore. But you've got to call a major reset. You've got to, it's got to come from the top of the company. You've got to send a strong message at that point that there's going to be a difference. Otherwise, you won't be successful with, with incremental measures. Interesting. And um, and what would be what would be your like first couple of couple of steps that you would take? So uh, getting getting the messaging out that things are changing. What yeah. else do you think are are, are relevant? Um, I would um, I would call together a group, a cross-functional group across the company for a new code of ethics, a personal code of ethics that is specific to the company. Um, I would then roll it out um, with a conversation led by leaders with their teams about the code. And let me give you an example of uh, the sort of conversation you, ha you need to have. Um, a lot of companies don't talk about alcohol 
Okay. Uh, you you notice like with things like WeWork and Uber, um, a number of the problems started mm. with um, with parties where people were drinking too much, and you right. see this over and over again in companies. Um, and people have asked me, well, we we never talk about alcohol. We just sort of assume that people will you know do the right thing here, uh, but we really can't say anything about how much alcohol you drink, can you? And I said, well, well, why not? Um, so we had a rule, we have a rule at Airbnb, you're always at work when you're with someone from work. And when you're with someone from work, our rule is you must only drink in moderation. That's the most, right? So what does that mean? Right? I, like, okay, well, um, you know, I, when I'm in a room with people at Airbnb, I, I say, look, there are probably 100 definitions of moderation just in the room. And then I share with them a personal situation. I call it Rob's rule. You know, Rob's rule on alcohol. Uh, here's my lifelong rule. Whenever I'm with someone from work, I have a two-drink maximum. So why two drinks? Well, um, I enjoy a good glass of wine or a, or a, or a, a local beer when I'm on the road uh, as part of socializing with people from work. And I know it doesn't matter how much food I'm eating or how much sleep I've had the night before. Um, I know that I can have two drinks and I'm going to be okay. I know that about myself personally. Uh, now. More than two drinks, I don't know what that third drink might do under particular circumstance. And I don't want to find out because my career is more important to me than that. So I very, I have a very public statement about it. I'm not going to have more than two drinks, and I know that. Then I tell folks from Airbnb, you don't need to adopt Rob's rule. That's my personal mm -hmm. rule. But everyone needs to have a personal rule about alcohol and work. We must. Now, for some people, that might be they don't drink at all or they don't like drinking with people from work. So their rule is no alcohol with work. That's great. Some people might have a one-drink rule, that they'll nurse one drink and be social. Some might have a two-drink rule or more. Um, but we all need a personal rule because the worst time to be thinking about how much alcohol you should be drinking at work is while you're drinking at work, mm -hmm. um, right? And a, a number of folks have come up to me at Airbnb afterwards and said, Six months, a year later, they'll say, Rob, you know, the one thing that really stuck with me from your talk was Rob's rule. Um, and that's kept me out of trouble um, uh, in, in future work events. Um, but you need to have a personal, authentic conversation as a leader with employees at a company. But just that one conversation that I've shared with everyone at Airbnb um, I think has helped set the right tone about what the place of alcohol is at work at Airbnb. And at Airbnb, we don't have parties that are about alcohol. We have parties that are about something else where we serve alcohol and non-alcoholic beverages. We always serve food and we make sure that we keep the time limit uh, to a shorter time frame so that nobody gets wasted. We'll be back after a short break. This part of the podcast is sponsored by AI, world's first AI-powered platform to build Enterprise Success Network. Learn more at Tower.ai. Let's go back. Interesting, and and I think you shared an interesting point about um, the story about this 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 lady uh, who has seen some some of the behavior in, in her previous company. So if you are on the other side of this table, right, and if you are receiving sort of this something which is which is challenging your your perception of integrity, or whether you call ethics and how do you behave, what like what would you say one one should do? 
what would what would yeah what what would your your suggestions to those to those people? Yeah, you know, the, uh, one real key is you have to you have to create an environment where people are comfortable coming forward and sharing their stories of problems, right? In so many workplaces, like the woman, the workplace where the woman worked before, uh, people are afraid. You know, uh, and you know, sexual harassment's a big part of it, right? Because um, people are afraid that they'll come forward, but that it'll be a one-on-one, -on -one. and the more senior person. Um, uh, will be believed because they're the more senior person and you're just one voice and there's no evidence. So I'll give you an example of something that we did at Airbnb to help combat that. Um, traditional hotlines don't work very well for sexual harassment. Again, mm -hmm. people are afraid to come forward to the hotline. They're afraid that it's going to be just me alone. Um, mm -hmm. And even if you uh, you encourage anonymous reporting, well, the anonymity doesn't do you any good. You know, you can anonymously say that you're a victim of sexual harassment from a particular boss. Well, what's the company going to do with that information? Well, the first thing they're going to do is go talk to that boss and say, is it true? Mm. Well, um, then the bo that boss knows who reported them, right? Because mm. they know who they sexually harassed. So now they can retaliate, and the company can't even protect the anonymous reporter because they don't even know who reported it. One thing we did at Airbnb is... We're uh, experimenting with other ways of doing reporting. So there's a, uh, there's a company called Vault. Now, Vault um, is a new way of reporting uh, workplace problems. Instead of using the traditional, you know, using the company's portal to do a hotline, Vault is an app you put on your phone. So employees could put the app on the phone and report through the phone. And Vault has a feature called Go Together. So what you can do is you can report a particular person for sexual harassment, but the report won't go to the company unless another person reports that same individual for sexual harassment. So the company only finds out about it if two people are going together. And you know, one lesson of Me Too is the T-O-O part. People are comfortable coming forward if they know they're not alone. They can come forward with something else, right? There's power. In, in victims coming forward together. And so why not build tools that will help people feel more comfortable and help them uh, come forward with someone else? And when you adopt these sorts of tools in the workplace, you're sending a message to all your employees. You know what? Um, we really do want this information. We really do want to know when these problems come up and we're serious about addressing Interesting. And um, if, if you look at um, some of the companies who are sort of in limelight about things um, have not gone, gone the way it should have been on ethics, many of these are startups with the hockey stick growth, right? So these are the startups where things were working so rapidly that just they just pretty much did it more and, and at, at, at an exploding rate. So how, how would you, like, when you wrap your head around sort of these, these companies, um, what is your take? Like, when is the time to think about these things? Because they yeah. have seen this growth, they have seen exploding demand, and everyone is focusing on delivering more and more, and it's working for them. Whatever they do, it's just the science says that they are. It's just working for them. So, yeah. what would you take? What would you say to those those companies? And sort of, um, I, I think you start in the garage. You start really early um, because I think a company's culture starts in its very earliest days. Um, you want to be ready for that growth because that growth will challenge your culture. I think what you can, what you find is that some companies um, might be able to survive 
for a while and even thrive for a while without talking about integrity or making it a focus. But what happens is when you get that hockey stick growth, um, you start adding more and more employees. You're also adding um, more and more focus. Um, as you grow, the world starts to turn its attention to you and put your practices under a microscope. More employees are joining, and therefore you have more opportunities for people who are looking around and who might say, wow, this company that I joined, um, their values aren't consistent with my values. Um, so you've got a far more uh, of an opportunity like the Susan Fowler blog post at Uber or some or people speaking up uh, at WeWork. Um, your, the, the risk of people speaking up and the risk of a problem are growing just as quickly with that hockey stick. So um, if possible, you want to be thinking about this before the hockey stick growth because that's going to prepare you for sustainable growth, which is what you're really looking for. Interesting. And and um, I spoke to one of the leaders who whose company was came under fire um, about the, the situation, and and his his um, pitch to me was that hey Vishal, I I believe my people were doing the right things. I have never been discussed anything about that, and I assumed everything is working nicely unless this uh, so called shit hits the fan, and then it's just all over the place. And 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 his point of view was that my my ability to respond is as good as the people that uh, I hold accountable, and and sort of and, and basically he said now everyone is pointing at me, but but the point was that I had um, sort of these HR systems in place to catch that, but they never end up sort of hitting. Yeah. And and so what would you tell to those people who somehow smell something like this and pretty much like feeling um, landlocked when it comes to how to go about that? Yeah, I think the leader that you described failed because they they started by assuming, right? Mm. They assumed that everybody was going to behave the right way. They assumed mm. that they had a process in place and that they assumed that others were going to handle it. Um, look, as a CEO, you can't outsource integrity, right? You can't count on somebody else doing it. Um, you are the one that has to set the tone. So, you know, look, you, this is something that, um, it doesn't. It doesn't consume you. You should have other people who are focusing on these things and setting up process. But you've got to be the one speaking out about it directly with employees at company meetings, at leadership meetings, because um, it, that sort of ambiguity ambiguity is created when you don't talk about it. Um, people are looking to you to set the tone. So um, having all the processes and all the people in place that's nice. Um, but as the leader, um, that's a unique obligation that you cannot delegate. Fair point. Um, so in your book, you, you, you talked about um, sort of six C's to get started with. Um, yep. Can you walk us through them? And then the other thing is that what, like how you come up with that? Yeah, you know what? Um, the first C is start at the top. Um, start at the top with the CEO. Make sure that you are um, uh, you have buy-in from the top of the company because, as I said earlier, without buy-in at the top of the company, you're wasting your time. Uh, the second C is the customized code of ethics that we talk about. Don't download something off the internet and stick your logo on it. Uh, build something that is unique to your culture and do something that your employees are have a hand in creating. 
so that it's something that is owned by the people, not something that is sent out by email with a checkbox. Um, number three is communicate the code. Again, we talked about this. This is something that leaders have to take the responsibility. Don't send it out in an email. You need to have a, a talk with all new employees at orientation right up front to set the tone. Talk about it at company meetings. Um, don't just leave this to um, uh, the, the break room compliance poster with a little four-point font on it. Um, that's no way to send a message. Um, number four, you need a clear reporting system. Um, you need to create ways where people can um, aren't afraid to come forward and, and talk about issues when they see them. Um, you know, without um, that sort of reporting system, uh, if people aren't comfortable talking, that's when things fester, boil, and then they end up blowing up in a major blog post or in, in significant stories that can uh, wreck the brand and uh, actually uh, uh, destroy your career as a leader. Uh, the fifth are consequences. We haven't talked about those yet, but consequences are um, when the code is violated. There have to be meaningful consequences because otherwise people will see that, well, you're not very serious. Um, if, if no one, and if people are free to violate the code with impunity and nothing ever happens to them, then obviously it's not very important. Um, there's a particular danger in this area. Um, if leaders are afraid to, um, uh, to hit um, uh, the most productive employees, it's like, well, oh, I know this guy, th this leading salesperson did wrong, but he's our leading salesperson. So we can't. Uh, actually enforce the consequences against them. Um, if you, So what you should be doing is you should be proactively cutting off the problem, having a talk with your salesperson and your leading salespeople about the importance of integrity up front so you aren't put in that uncomfortable position. But once you're in that position, um, you have no choice but to take action. Otherwise, you'll really be seen as a phony. Um, and the last C is constant. You need to have a constant drumbeat of communication about this. You can't uh, just have a talk at orientation and assume that people will remember. So I'll give you an example of something that we've done at, um, at Airbnb. We, um, we do videos, integrity videos. I'm not talking about the, the two-hour sexual harassment video that some third party creates. We actually make our own. Um, and we do it actually with not a lot of fancy equipment or a big budget. Um, here's the camera that we use to create our, our, our videos. It's my iPhone. Um, and we use a little $10 drugstore tripod. And we do three-minute videos each month on a different topic related to integrity. Um, and we make them actually kind of funny. There's humor in, involved in them. And we don't require people to watch them. What we do is we challenge ourselves to make something that's interesting and funny enough that people will want to watch it. And every month, between one and 2,000 unique employees at Airbnb voluntarily watch an ethics video that we send out. Um, and they're on things from um, how, to, how to interview with integrity. You know, what are the bad, what are interview questions that you shouldn't be asking? Um, how to deal with alcohol in the workplace. Um, how you should deal with, um, with problems uh, around gifts and what gifts you should be accepting from vendors. And what about personal use of office resources? Um, employees actually write me and want to appear in these videos, and they come in for, they come with suggestions on topics for videos. 
So that's a great example of you don't just rely on a one-time talk. You keep the conversation going so that people are always keeping it in mind uh, that this is uh, important behavior for them uh, to be engaging in. Interesting. So, um, uh, and, and are these videos public by any chance? Um, the videos are not public, but with, the, uh, with my book, what I'm going to be doing is going out and speaking at a number of conferences. Um, and I've gotten permission from people who appear in the videos to let me show, uh, show these at some conferences. So as soon as we're all traveling again and gathering in groups, um, uh, I'll, I'll be out at a number of places to give people examples. Interesting. But I think people shouldn't be uh, intimidated into doing these. These videos are terrible. Um, you know, they, the production quality is terrible. The act, I, I appear in a number of the videos myself, and I'm terrible at acting. My daughter um, uh, is an aspiring actress in college. She runs from the room in, in horror when she sees these. But I think part of the point of this is that, um, you know what? It's authentic. It's, it's, um, it, it, you'd much rather have a terrible, uh, a terrible video uh, quality-wise that you make than have a slick something that a third party does. Because that third party, everybody knows that isn't, your ethical um, production. That's what somebody else says. And again, you can't outsource this stuff. That's, that's true. So um, tell us about, say, your responsibility or <clears throat> responsibility of a chief ethics officer in maintaining the ethics of an organization. So if suppose some outbreak happens, God forbid, so who, who will be responsible for that? So do you think that, because uh, I think why I'm asking this is there's a huge even cancel culture when it comes to some of these positions as well. So um, I give you an example. So chief risk officer or chief security officer, right? So they became sort of the guinea pig of um, if any outcome happens. And then the problem is that once these guys are the most aware of the situation, but they end up uh, leaving for the leaving the organizations because now they are the from the cancel culture point point of view. They so what's your take about that phenomenon of our itchy finger? To what what, what do you say? Um, you know, there are uh, a number of people inside of a company who are responsible for ethics. It's not me um, alone by any means. I'm a spokesperson for it, and I work with other executives in dealing with ethical issues. So, you know, there, there are audit departments. There are compliance officers. There's a head of HR. Um, the role of a chief ethics officer isn't to displace any of these people. I think what it is, is you know, there's a difference, though, between compliance and ethics. Compliance is about following the law. You know, you do certain things because the law says that you must do them. Um, and that's all well and good. Ethics is about doing something because it's the right thing to do. Law, compliance with the law is sort of the base. That's the floor. But often you go beyond it and you do it not because you have to, but because you want to. And that's, I think, where chief ethics officers thrive is, you know, is driving that message across. When something goes wrong, I partner with HR, I partner with audit, I partner with compliance, other parts of the organization to address it. You know, look, Airbnb is like any other company. We're not perfect. And we, we, we don't have, uh, it's not as if there are no issues. But I do think that we have an environment where, it, where big issues are less likely to occur because people are, um, people believe that everyone around them is trying to do the right thing. So there's almost, there's the environment of ethics. 
And also people are not afraid to speak up if there's a problem. So we're able to, to I think, become aware of it and address it faster. Interesting. Now, um, I think one thing I, I definitely want your perspective on is the times today, right? So what's happened so with COVID crisis, pandemic crisis happening. So I think one of the one of the uh, interesting playbook that's un, that's unrolling in front of our eyes are how each governments are reacting to this pandemic and and their like and I think that brings really your your idea of uh, uh, intentional integrity to test, right? Because now most of these these some governments are pretty much going ballistic when it comes to being transparent, and some are just not talking at all. They're just just creating this 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 um, vial of, of secrecy to not to not to reveal. So what would you say, like, how would you say during the testing times, how, how would, what, what is your playbook saying about, about your, your integrity and your aspect of retaining intentional integrity? Yeah, and integrity is never more important than in a crisis. Um, and people have long memories about um, how you respond in a crisis. Um, there are a number of things that I, I uh, talk to leaders about doing in times like this. You know, number one, you've got to take care of your people. Um, if you're in a business that continues to operate, like a grocery store or a hospital and the like, um, you've got to make sure that you care about your employees' health and well-being. Um, if you would be afraid to be on the front lines, then you shouldn't put your employees in that position either. Um, mm -hmm. There's a great story that came out. There's a company called Emerald Packaging. Uh, they are an essential business here in California that does a lot of, uh, provides a lot of the packaging around goods during this time. Um, the CEO of the company went on the floor to talk to employees, and he told them, look, if you don't feel well, if you are sick, don't come to work, okay? Um, an employee in the back said, raised their hand and said, I'm the only person that knows how to operate a particular piece of machinery. Um, if I go out, the machine goes down. What do we do then? And that's what I call an integrity moment, right? You're a leader. You're in front of a group. You could ask a question like that. And the CEO uh, handled it beautifully. The CEO looked at the employee and said, if you do not feel well, do not come to work. And then he looked at the employee and said, I want you to repeat it for me. Do not come to work. And the employee said, do not come to work. And everybody laughed. but. The CEO made the point. Um, so often, how would a message like that be delivered? Uh, a company that's not thinking in a crisis would have a mid-level HR person send out an email uh, with 20 points in it, one of which would be, if you are not feeling well, don't come to work. While at the same time, a CEO is sending out a message saying, we've got to hit this number. We've got to get this number of packages out during this period or heads are going to roll, right? So. Um, that's sending two different messages. Um, so one of the things I liked about that example so much was that the CEO personally delivered the message in a way that it was clear mm -hmm. everyone knew what their responsibilities were. Um, another way to take care of people is that, um, look, a lot of companies in these circumstances um, are struggling financially. Um, and this, there'll be financial sacrifice. One thing that I think leaders have got to do, you know, Simon Sinek has the book, Leaders Eat Last. Um, I'd add a corollary, a leader's sacrifice first. In times like this, um, a leader can't ask employees to make financial sacrifices unless they are the first to do it. 
So I applaud leaders that are foregoing salary or taking substantial salary cuts um, and who are putting the burden, financial burden, um, first on the leaders um, who can afford it most and as a last resort, putting it on the people at the low end of an organization. Um, there may still need to be layoffs, and you, you can ethically do layoffs um, mm -hmm. or furloughs, but make sure you explore all of the options first. Maybe there are ways to avoid it. Maybe you can get concessions on rent. Maybe you can get concessions from suppliers. Um, uh, or even if you still need to take action, you can use furloughs or do something that will enable the employees to at least maintain health benefits and the potential of recovering their job when this is over. Um, people will have long memories about whether you went out of your way to help treat them with respect and integrity. Um, one other thing I'd point out is um, be, good to, be good to your other stakeholders. Um, can you do good for your suppliers? Can you do good for the communities at large in this time? Because people need help in these times. And this is a great way to help other stakeholders if you're in a position to do so. And you can do it in ways, by the way, that might not really cost you anything. Um, one example, um, there's a, a, a shelter, a group of family shelters in the Bay Area. And they got the word to me through my network that they were really hurting for food particularly snacks, um, the businesses they relied on to give snacks to families that are in these homeless shelters uh, were shut down and they didn't have any. And you know what? I thought my company has a lot of snacks and the snacks are just sitting there in these darkened, empty offices going stale. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen if we go two or three months? Well, they'll get thrown out. Mm -hmm. So why can't we put these snacks that are in offices all over the area? Why can't we put them to people that really need them right now. So, you know, I put up a LinkedIn post to my network and the response has been phenomenal. Beautiful. Companies are reaching out to me. Um, multiple companies are reaching out to me every day wanting to know how can I donate my snacks to a family shelter and, and do a small thing to help others in this time. Um, and that's, uh, I think, one thing that's uh, a silver lining in all of this is the way that so many companies have stepped up um, doing things that. Um, are helping others at a time of need. And I think the uh, crisis often reveals character in companies. And it's been cool to see a lot of neat examples like that. Interesting. Um, uh, thank you so much uh, for sharing your perspective on that. I think that brings us to the tail end of the conversation. So I want to spend a few minutes on your journey. So right. we ask all of our guests to talk about or share um, some of the things that has really helped them be successful and uh, achieve what they have achieved? Like, what would you attribute those qualities or your success to? Um, one thing for me is always being open to new things. Um, I was a federal prosecutor, for example, for uh, the first part of my career. And federal prosecutors traditionally spend 40 years prosecuting criminals, um, or they may go out and become criminal defense attorneys. And, and I didn't really want to do that. I, mm -hmm. I wanted to go out and do something positive in life. Um, so in, in a sense, I wanted to help build. Um, and uh, I, but I couldn't figure out what it was that I was going to do. And you know, during that time, there was a small little company in my uh, jurisdiction in Northern Virginia where I was a prosecutor. And I kept hearing about this company from other prosecutors. And I kept thinking, what is this company? So um, curiosity got the best of me one day. So I went out and I got one of these computer disks that this company handed out. The name of this company was America Online. 
right? And I put the disc in my computer and I plugged um, the phone line in the back of my computer and got onto this thing called the internet. Um, and it opened up a whole new world to me. Um, through that journey, it ultimately led me to applying for a job with a company that I became introduced to online uh, called eBay. Um, I ended up joining eBay when there were only 170 employees at the company. Um, but they were open to having a federal prosecutor join their team and be able to add and believed in me that I could add value. And I was open to doing something completely different in life. Um, I think multiple times over my career, um, I've learned that careers are not step ladders. They're jungle gyms. Um, be open to different things because uh, that's how you grow. Um, I would think that would be one lesson. Um, and, and I think number two, um, you know, be good to others along the way. Um, by, by being someone that's fun to be around and somebody who genuinely cares about your colleagues, um, you're the first person that people call when there's an, a, a job opportunity. Uh, so I think that's been something that's really been helpful to me throughout my career, that one job has often led to the next, um, simply because I genuinely like being around other people and care about them and show empathy. And uh, that's something that people often appreciate. Awesome. And um, we uh, ask all of our guests to share some of the favorite books that they have read. So yeah. besides intentional integrity, like what would you what would you suggest? Yes. Uh, and Thank by the way, to to our to our uh, listeners and viewers, great book. And I, I'll I'll talk to you about the uh, in few minutes. But yes, um, what would you suggest? Um, I love reading uh, personal improvement books uh, and leadership books. Um, I think if you surround yourself um, with with thinking, uh, with a learning mindset. And an openness like that, um, I think it makes you a lot better. And I'll mention there's a book by a woman by the name of Barbara Fredrickson. She's a scientist. And the name of the book is Positivity. And what she studied is how do positive thoughts that run through your head impact your happiness and your success in life? And believe it or not, they actually got scientific where there's a ratio that they have figured out scientifically of positive thoughts to negative thoughts. And successful people have a particular ratio of positive to negative thoughts. And I won't, I won't give away the spoiler. I'll let you guys uh, look around on it. Um, but the way that you frame your life and the way that you think um, and approach each day um, has a big impact on your success. And that, that book has been influential uh, to me in, in thinking about the, the thoughts that run through my mind and what I let dominate my thinking. Awesome. Uh, thank you for sharing that. So now last, last but not the least, if you want something for our listeners and viewers to take away from this conversation, like what would that be? What would be the closing remark? Um, don't assume integrity. Um, instead, it, build the kind of workplace that you want um, by encouraging open conversations about doing the right thing and talk about doing the right thing. Um, you know, in, in a life's journey, I think we all want to feel like we're having a positive impact on the world. And the way that we have that impact so often is the place where we spend most of our time, which is work. Um, why shouldn't work be something that you feel good about? Uh, it can be more than just a paycheck. Um, and it by, I think, being a positive influence for integrity and doing right at work, um, you can have a positive impact on the world because uh, – 
as I said earlier, I think companies, we need companies more than ever to solve the world's biggest problems. And we can all play an important role in that by speaking up at work. Awesome. With that said, uh, Rob, thank you so much for uh, for spending time with us, sharing um, your perspective. And I think to our listeners and viewers, uh, do take read this book. I think it's fascinating. Um, there are a lot of interesting examples. And, and, and um, Rob, uh, just to ask you, so there are a lot of codes, code puzzles there are, or code sort of scenarios here. Where do you come up with all those codes? <laughs> you know, there are... Uh, one thing about the book, we were determined uh, it wasn't going to be a philosophy book. It was going to be very practical. So uh, Joan Hamilton, who uh, wrote the book with me, uh, she and I uh, took um, our combined, I think, uh, gosh, I've been a lawyer for over 30 years. Joan has been in business for over 30 years. We've seen a lot. And so we took real things that have actually happened over our careers and sort of combined two or three things at once in order to create these. These There are not any wild unrealistic uh, hypotheticals in here. There, These are real life examples of ethical dilemmas that are occurring in workplaces all the time. Uh, I think uh, folks have told me that they've chuckled while reading uh, a number of the examples in the book because they recognize them from their own work experience. They are fascinating. I, I, absolutely. I think that was what I was, I was thinking about. It. First, I thought it was gimmick, but then I started reading. I think I've seen this. I've seen maybe this. I've seen that. Yeah. It's pretty practical and pretty sort of mind numbing to see and, and, and basically your perspective of what you should do. I think that's, that's fascinating. And thank you for sharing that. And I think during this time, we need this more than ever. And I think um, everyone should get a glance of what's going on. And this will give, this will give at least some of your uh, laundry in shape of what's going on. Thank you so much yeah. on that, Rob. You bet. I actually think integrity is a superpower that can <laughs> uh, not only make you feel good about doing the right thing, but uh, it can actually supercharge your business and help it grow. So. I hope people get a lot out of it. Awesome, thanks. Um, uh, I thought I was sick of home, but actually I was homesick. Never really knew that I would have to grow up so quick. I'm so uncomfortable, don't know anybody here. Just a couple dudes that I met once, that's it. And I go into the booth feeling nervous. Got butterflies in my stomach like I'm so worthless. Is the mic on? I don't know how to work this. Inside I'm breaking down, I hope I'm not up on a certain